0: I am uh, speaking with Nora Aliqat, who is a Palestinian human rights attorney, uh, a legal scholar, and the author of the brand new book entitled Justice for Some Law and the Question of Palestine, which was uh, just published by Stanford University Press a few months ago. Um, Noura, um, do you want to tell us a few things about this uh, b- beautifully produced book? Um, you're bringing, uh, for, not 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 for the first time, but but I think for the first time in in a while, th- the idea of how the question of Palestine can be seen through the prism of law. Do you want to say a few things about about how how what you, what you're trying to do with this book?
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Rashid. Um, so what I do in this project is I try to tell a different story about the Palestinian struggle for freedom uh, and narrate what that struggle has looked like over a hundred year period between 1917 and 2017 as told through the relationship between international law and politics. What the book is doing that's distinct from other projects is it's using a very explicitly critical legal theory approach that assumes that the law is indeterminate and therefore can have multiple meanings to show both how the law can be a site of oppression as well as a tool of resistance as well as to help um, demonstrate, to, to explain a history of the present. How has that relationship between law and politics how does that explain for us, for example, the death of the two-state solution, the high registers of death and destruction in Gaza, as well as basically what we have now, which is a singular Israeli jurisdiction across what is known as the you know, Palestine mandate between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, and, and what explains this inequality? And I use, I use critical legal theory to, to walk the reader through that.
0: I think that's a wonderful summary. Um, the thing that, one of the things that struck me the most of this, about this book is the way that you show how law can, has been used in different ways, both against the Palestinians, as you say, to permit uh, a, a mass killing, uh, to, to drive through imposed solutions, but has, can also be used, and you're arguing this as well. That that outcome wasn't in, that those outcomes were not inevitable, and that law can be used uh, in other ways. I I've always been struck by a, 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 a sort of standard Palestinian trope, which is a sherei dawliya international legitimacy, which seems to be an an, an an argument that international law is on our side, i.e., on a, on the Palestinian side. And you're 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 making a very subtle argument about it can be used by either side. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: That's a great point because I think in most of the literature that invokes international law, it's basically one that looks to international law as an objective arbiter, and that, you know, but for the perverse intervention of the United States or Israel's manipulation, that the law would yield a particular outcome that was just for the Palestinians. And I think that that's uh, frankly uh, too much credit to the law and naive about the way that it works because the law will not produce any particular outcome and what I explain is that it only promises a contest over an outcome. How the law is going to be deployed depends on the balance of power, historical considerations, as well as the strategies of legal actors, and sadly, over the course of 100 years, even though Palestinians think that it's on their side, in fact it's been Israel. That has been mindful about this nature of the law, more mindful, and has been able to deploy it to their advantage to establish, you know, permanent occupation in the West Bank where they are shortly going to, uh, you know, annex Area C and they're going to do it under a legal framework, uh, where they, for example, have been able to redefine what is uh, legitimate and illegitimate violence, who is a civilian, who is a combatant, what is uh, entitled to civilian immunity in terms of infrastructure, and what is not, in order to to uh, wage systematic war against the population that they continue to occupy in Gaza. Um, and so, like you said, I don't think that that was inevitable, but I do think that this is, you know, this is about how we approach the law and the strategic. Um, you know, our, our strategic eye. And and unfortunately for, for Palestinians, we haven't really paid the law much mind. We've never had a legal strategy in the sense that we've had numerous legal tactics and interventions, the Palestinian national movement, as well as individual actors, but have never had a number of tactics that, you know, steadily uh, culminate in a particular outcome, in ways, for example, that Namibia well, they dep-
0: constitute, as you said, or that constitute a strategy, their attacks. Go on. Sorry.
1: Well, no, I was just going to, you know, I was just I, one of the things I do is that I also look to Namibia, and in, in in the Namibian case, they did use a series of interventions that culminated in a particular outcome. There was a strategic vision, um, and and for. Palestinians it hasn't been that it's been one-offs it's been exciting interventions that don't necessarily need to lead to the next step it's not an incremental um, buildup and more importantly than that even more important than the question of strategies this question of what is, how are the Palestinians deploying a legal strategy and also confronting the political system that's maintaining their subjugation at the heart of that? And this is something that, of course, you've taught us the most about, but at the heart of that is challenging the U.S.'s role in the question of Palestine and displacing right. them from the center as mediator.
0: Right, right. I, I was very struck. I was struck by your legal analysis of a couple of these key junctures in that hundred year saga that you the, the arc that you're that you cover in the book um one of them of course being your understanding of the mandate system and balfour but uh, to m- my way of thinking and this this helped me in my own thinking um in particular your understanding of 242 and the and the and the various maneuvers around uh, the 1967 war um i don't know do you, do you want to talk about a little of this just briefly uh, about a little of this this historical background to where we are, because I think we may be today in 2019, sort of at the end of a of an ellipsis which starts with 67242 and inadmissibility of acquisition of territory by force, with the 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 moves towards outright annexation supported by Israel, supported by the Trump administration. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So I, I want to answer this question about 242 and if um, we can to return to the question of the mandate period where your, um, where your work on the mandate as an iron cage was instrumental for me to think about how, um, how the mandate and, and the designation of Palestine as a site of Jewish settlement becomes central to my analysis of the legal exception. And how that except but so I'll do the 242 and then we maybe can go back to that other part uh, that other history.
0: Mm-hmm. let yes let's start with two four two yes let 's
1: start with two four two because this is so pressing right now, right Israel is about to declare you know annexation. it looks like people are saying this is against the law and yet how have they been able to do it uh, for for more than five decades and so this goes to the heart of the argument that the law is not does not yield a particular outcome when two four two was passed in the u n security Council unanimously in November one thousand nine hundred and sixty seven with the support of Egypt and Jordan both of whom um, were, you know, were stakeholders um, in terms of the Arab lands that were were occupied. One of the, at the moment that it's passed, it's set up to basically uh, be a defeat for the Palestinians, an absolute defeat for the Palestinians, because it both enshrines that Palestinians are a refugee problem without a juridical status as a people entitled to self-determination, and it enshrines that Israel will be a permanent um, political reality in the Middle East because the Arab lands will only be returned in a quid pro quo arrangement in exchange for um, normalizing relations with the state. So from
0: 1960 exactly. Recognition.
1: So from 1967 onwards, Palestinians in almost every you know Palestinian National Council meeting are condemning 242 as a tool of oppression. And as, you know, the, the single most source of, of dispossession and negation. And during, in, in 1974, in fact, legislated an alternative to 242 and UN General Assembly Resolution 3236 as a way to maneuver around it. Um, mm-hmm. In 1988. Which calls
0: self-determination, exactly.
1: Which calls for yeah. Palestinian self-determination without creating the condition of recognizing Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's correcting 242 in those two ways. So there's two things that's interesting about 242. Um, one is this, in, you know, in 1988, Palestinians then repurposed 242 to be a tool of resistance when it then becomes the main, and to this date, becomes the main slogan around which they're claiming the entirety of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip because Israel has an obligation to retreat to the, you know, 1967 borders. At this point, mm-hmm. at this juncture, this is when Israel repurposes 242, not as the condition for recognizing the PLO, but in fact, as, as, as saying that they will not be bound by 242's mandate. And so now, now they are opposed to it. So one, to Today, just. Exactly. Today, yeah, so that it just that highlights uh, basically how the law changes over time based on strategy and balance of power. But to your specific issue, what is it about the resolution that made room for the, the status quo today? And that was specifically in the drafting of the resolution and in what was not an error but was the result of negotiations whereby the definite article uh, preceding occupied territories is dropped. And so rather mm-hmm. than describing the occupied territories as the occupied territories, they're just described as occupied territories captured um, in the recent war. And so Israel has used this legal um, loophole immediately since 1967 to argue that we are mandated to withdraw from territories occupied, but it doesn't specify which ones so that if we so, withdraw from all of the Sinai, then that's sufficient. And that's exactly what they're doing now.
0: I, I think that you, you put your finger on something that, that, um, was really important in the period when Israel was following a certain interpretation of two let Let's take us, let's take us to where we are now. Um, we are now seeing the Trump administration, uh, in fact, leading on this and in effect saying with, the, with its decision on the Golan Heights annexation and with Pompeo's refusal just the other day to criticize annexation talk uh, by, by Israel uh, vis-a-vis not just the Golan Heights, but also presumably the West Bank, we're now entering a situation where once again, this resolution is being reinterpreted. You talked you talked about how it was interpreted in '67 and its immediate aftermath. You've talked about how the PLO tried to repurpose it. Uh, you want to talk just a little bit about what you how you see what is happening now, vis-a-vis this 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 resolution.
1: I think, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. But um, what I see is that basically, it's it's reaching its the two four two is reaching its logical end. This particular uh, Trump administration has adopted um, almost verbatim, I think, the legal argument um, that I articulated, which is, you know, w- was was put forward by um, an Israeli legal scholar and former ambassador to the UN, Yehuda Zvi Blum. Basically, the missing reversioner argument that not only didn't, you know, it wasn't just about which territories Israel was mandated to withdraw from, but that also from the get argued that the West Bank and Gaza had no sovereign. Therefore, occupation right. law cannot apply as a matter of law and in its de jure form. And it was up to Israeli discretion where they, you know, where they apply um, occupation law, including, you know, this prohibition on uh, usurping title or sovereignty and mm-hmm. uh, so, it, it, this has been undermined or, or i guess rebuffed by the icj um, as well as the u.n security council sure. as well sure. as you know numerous u.n general assembly resolutions and yet here you see a bankrupt legal argument continue to have life when you have a global superpower. Uh, fully behind it. The US administration, as you said, is evading, uh, is not condemning talks of annexation, has in fact moved its embassy from Tel Aviv to East Jerusalem in contravention of that principle, has recognized Israel's sovereignty of, in the Golan Heights um, in contravention of this principle, has dropped the moniker occupied from West Bank and Gaza and its State Department reports. And so we see global superpower marching. Um, behind and with Israel on this question that is interpreting 242 not in the way that negotiators had envisioned it in 1967, which would be an arrangement, we give land back, Israel returns Arab lands in exchange for permanent recognition, but instead um, in order to basically allow Israel uh, the legal means to expand its hold. And expand its jurisdiction.
0: Exactly. Um, what, what, you, what you seem to have now is an extraordinary conflation of, as you said, the United States sort of following these discredited arguments. There is no sovereign. This is a disputed rather than an occupied territory. There was no sovereign, i.e. Jordan's sovereignty over the West Bank was never recognized except by Britain and Pakistan. Uh, therefore, it is a disputed territory. And then you have room for this ridiculous—I mean, to anybody who's thinking of law—claim that well, this is all this is all legislated, as it were, in the Bible. And you have you have the Israeli ambassador making statements about the Golan and the, in the in the Security Council. You have the U.S. Secretary of State suggesting that God may have brought uh, Donald Trump down in order to protect Israel. I mean we're not we're, we're talking now about myth fantasy, religion and and belief rather than anything anchored in in law um, in addition to which some very strange arguments are also being made by both the United States and Israel, one of them being that Syria, and presumably they'll say the same thing about Jordan when it comes to, to annexation of the, of the West Bank. Syria attacked Israel and, that and therefore Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights is perfectly legitimate. Um, I, I know this, is, this takes us a little bit away from 242, but do you want to say anything about this? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, have about to we have an article about to come out in the Journal of Palestine Studies, which I urge our listeners to, to look for, where, where, where Victor Khattab talks about this. But do you want to say a little bit about this?
1: Well, I'm glad you, you lifted up Victor's name. And I do want to say that much of the work that I've done is also building on incredible work of, of scholars like Victor, who writes, you know, the book on, on this question on law and on Palestine between um, you know, in the 19th century through 1948, um, John Quigley, uh, George Bisharat, uh Lisa Hajad, Laurie Allen, Neve Gordon, Nicola Peregini, that this is um Virginia Tilley, Richard Falk, obviously, uh, Thomas Mallison, that the literature is so rich on this issue. Um and I encourage yeah, and and, and many of those authors have been published in, in the Journal of Palestine Studies, and I'm so grateful that I'm 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 their student. Um, so, but on this issue in particular around this argument, you know, Israel is saying, oh, but if, um, an RDMC does this in a Harvard Law Review article, I think in 1994, that Israel has an argument uh, that basically tries to say that, yeah, you cannot acquire territory, you know, by force in a conflict, except if that conflict, if that force was used defensively. So the idea that defensive conquest somehow trumps the prohibition on the acquisition of territory by force, that has no basis whatsoever in law anywhere. That has no basis. They're literally making it up. Now we might see that and say, well, that's ludicrous. How can you can just make up law? But the truth is, is that you can make up law. You can create law through practice. Um, and that's, you know, a form of customary law. And it really depends whether or not that has any um, credibility really depends on what other states do in response. So, you know, a, a customary law is, is a combination of what states do and what other states believe is legal. And so here we have, you know, um, Israel and the United States both saying that it's legal and sh- doing it in practice. But, and if other states do that, if other states acquire territory under the veneer of defensive conquest and make similar claims, then we can see a new principle possibly emerging. Um, but if enough states are responding to this moment with condemnations and affirmations of its illegality, then it basically becomes, well, Israel is acting in contravention of international law, and the U.S. is supporting them, and there is no punishment. Um, and those are two different statuses. But that has no basis in law
0: the other point that that obviously is relevant here is whether in fact uh, an attack by israel on syria in any way constitutes a defensive war a uh, preemptive attack on egypt syria and jordan uh, by israel uh, in in june 1967 uh, it, it, in and of itself is not is not a defensive war uh, whatever the situation before uh, good
1: you know what I find so interesting about that, Ishid, is that I've actually seeing this argument reemerge both in popular and scholarly discourse. That it seems as though there's enough interest now um, that people want to revisit this historical moment that Israel claims. You know, in its in its um, defeat of the Arab armies, that this was you know David against um, Goliath, Goliath, and and that it was a defense. You know, and and the literature out there suffices to raise the question whether it was not and in fact the the drafting history of 242 took 5 months specifically right. over this debate because right. if in fact Israel's attack was not defensive then it was aggression and if it's aggression they just have to retreat from the territories without right. a quid pro quo arrangement the reason that they come to this outcome where you know the arabs and the soviet union don't prevail in their interpretation of casting Israel's force as aggressive um, is pre- specifically because of Britain and U.S. intervention that want to establish, you know, some sort of equitable outcome that returns the land, you know, Arab lands to their um owners, but also ensures Israel's viability as a political reality. And so you're right that this is not settled in the literature. I know we don't have time, but I think it's so important for us. I mean, you have... You know your uh, next book coming out on a hundred years of war against Palestinians, and I mentioned it's
0: called the hundred years war on Palestine, precisely.
1: The hundred, and and I think you know that the the historical frame is is incredibly relevant, right? It's it that past is our future.
0: One of the things that I that I show in the book, just citing American diplomatic documents that are in the public domain today, is that the Arabs were not going to attack Israel. The Arabs couldn't attack Israel. The United States knew it. The Israelis knew it. Uh, Israel launched an attack with the support of the United States uh, on Arab countries that had been told not to attack by the Soviets and the Americans. Uh, So there was no sense in that the Arabs had taken belligerent actions, but there was no sense in which Israel uh, uh, was was under attack. In fact, Israel chose to launch an attack rather than resolve the conflict in another manner. And and the way in which this has been turned on its head into a quote-unquote defensive war is one of the great public relations coups of the 20th century. However, before we go, I I know we have to wrap this up. I just want to go back to something you mentioned, which is the mandate. Can you walk us through that legal structure that was created early on uh, in the Palestine mandate, through the Palestine mandate, um, and which sets up so much for Palestine in the decades that follow?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do. So, here I really want to encourage listeners to read your book, The Iron Cage, where the seed for this kind of, from my own legal analysis, was planted by your framing of the mandate as a trap that Palestinians, Mm -hmm. you know, couldn't get out of. And, you know, of course you can see this better than me, but basically the idea that Palestinians, in order to have claims to political sovereignty, had to accept the structure of the mandate, which negated, um, which negated their existence and which... It was it was a condition, you can exist if you accept that you don't exist. And so then what happens? And so that, for me, raised this issue which which we know in law, you know, some people would look at that and just say, well, this is just colonial. This is just colonial law. This is just power determining an outcome. And I think that, that again, that's giving the law a pass. In the law, there is something known as um, a legal exception where uh, you can suspend the law and its application when there is a political prerogative that demands it. And so the, the debate in the literature is whether or not that's actually a lawless uh, site or it's a lawful site, and I answer that question by saying it's very much a lawful site because the legal exception is not just pushing the law to the side but is actually creating new law to regulate that exceptional circumstance or what's known um, in Latin as a sui generis example, that there's this is a fact pattern unlike any other whereby you cannot apply analogy or precedent to determine what the, law, what the law should do or what is the applicable law. So it gives the sovereign the right to create new law. And Israel has used um, at this legal exception time and time again to create new law in order to permit its colonial expansion and domination. For the British Empire, they describe the mandate as sui generis. They call it an exception, right? They, they, they never, they never try to negate that. And the fact pattern that they're saying is unique is that it's a racist fact pattern. Palestine, you know, who cares about the whims, right? Lord Balfour, who cares about the whims of some, you know, 700,000 Arabs who want to govern themselves when there is a need to, you know, fulfill this much more noble uh cause of establishing a Jewish national home. And so you have a unique... He says it in almost
0: those very words, actually.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate. I've internalized it. <laughs> but they, they basically set up this fact pattern that becomes co-constitutive with the legal framework so that the new framework recreates that fact pattern and the fact pattern justifies the framework in ways that they operate together and create an entirely new legal regime. It is this exception in, in law that Palestinians then become um, beholden to and suspended by, and whereas you describe that they can't get out of the mandate because the conditions they're placed under uh, make it politically impossible, I'm making the legal argument that you can't use a legal argument to get out of a legal exception because it's it's circular. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. The only way to get out of it. The only way to get out of it is to challenge the political structure, and we see that first challenge most boldly waged by Palestinians in the Great Revolt between 1936 and 1939, which in fact leads to a different legal interpretation that culminates in the White Paper of 1939. Um, And we see again and again when Palestinians challenge the structure, they are changing the law as well. We see that in the 1970s. and we see it again in 19, you know, uh, in the late 1980s. Unfortunately, we're not seeing it anymore because there is no challenge to the legal structure.
0: Let me insert that what you just said is exactly right about the 1970s because the 242, as you said earlier, does exactly what the mandate does. It creates a structure, a sui generis, unique structure whereby the Palestinians don't exist. They're just refugees. The, The word Palestine and the word Palestinians does not exist In the mandate for Palestine, the word Palestine and the word Palestinians does not exist in 242. The Palestinians imposed themselves after 1967, just as you as you pointed out, they imposed themselves in the late 30s with the revolt. And unfortunately, uh, we don't see that happening today, Um, but it has happened in the past and uh, we will see about the future. OK, I'm glad we were able to to go back and touch on that mandate, because I think it the, the mandate. Fits together with what, what what you earlier said about two four two in nineteen sixty seven. Well, thank you very very much, Noura. Um,
1: well, actually, we can I say one together. thing before we get off? Because sure. I think as a sure. teaser, you know, it's such a delight to speak with you, not just because of the monumental contributions you've made to Palestine studies and the way that you know really impacted our knowledge production on the question of Palestine, but on a per- very personal note, um, I interview. You for uh, uh, Chapter Four, which is on That's right.
2: That's Oslo. Right,
1: and you know you're a scholar but also um, an advocate and, and you were an, uh, um, an advisor to the negotiations team, and your interview, along with interviews with other negotiators at the time, helped me to illuminate a different story about Oslo as well.
0: I was, an, I was an advisor to the delegations in Madrid and Washington. Uh, sadly, uh, uh, the kind of legal expertise that your book and the, and the wonderful scholars that you mentioned represent was not present when the PLO went to Oslo. Um, we we had the benefit of good legal advice in, in, in Madrid and Washington. Uh, the people who negotiated the Oslo Accords were bereft of the slightest knowledge of the law and the result shows it.
1: Well, not only that, but because in Madrid and Washington you actually did have legal scholars. You had Rajesh Hadde at the table, right? You had Anis Fawzi Qasim. Qasim
0: had Rajesh Hadi. I mean, we had, we, had, we had fine legal minds. Exactly. Yeah, and in
1: Oslo, not only did you not have legal minds, you just didn't have a strat. You had nothing. <laughs> They had <laughs> nothing. Not.
0: They had not. mm-hmm. they, 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 I, One could go on and on about how little they had and how badly they did. Uh, well, this is really wonderful. I hope I hope listeners will enjoy it as much as I have. Um, and I think we should do this again.
1: <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you, Nishy.
2: You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The status is produced by the arab studies institute in partnership with voices of the middle east and north africa co-sponsored by george mason university's middle eastern studies program and the american university of beirut's asfari institute for civil society and citizenship interested in pitching an interview a program episode or becoming a partner email our associate producer paola messina at paola at StatusHour.com. To listen to more conversations, on the scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, StatusHour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit StatusHour.com.